You are listening to The Catholic Wire. Welcome back to another episode of What Every Catholic Should Know. We are continuing our series on the Baltimore Catechism number three. Today's episode is going to be about the effects of the redemption. And I'm joined, as usual, with our guest, Father Zapeda. Father, welcome back. Thank you, Brother. It's good to be here. And uh, I'll begin asking you the questions, if, uh, if that's all right. Yeah, I'll just make one brief comment uh, for our listeners. Uh, you might notice that Father Saunders is not joining us in these last two lessons. And the reason for that is that he's, uh, he's very busy. So uh, we hope to, to be able to join him again in the future <laughs> lessons. Uh, but, you know, we, we have to work with what we have. Uh, so hopefully we can get him in the future. But that's, that's the reason why he's not here. Okay. Well, we'll hope to see him again. For so... Sure. First, first question, what is an effect? So we're talking about the effects of the redemption, and an effect is that which is caused by something else. For example, smoke is an effect of fire. What does redemption mean? Redemption means the buying back of a thing that was given away or sold. What did Adam give away by his sin, and what did our Lord buy back for him and us? By his sin, Adam gave away all right to God's promised gift of grace in this world and of glory in the next. And our Lord bought back the right that Adam threw away. What are the chief effects of the redemption? The chief effects of the redemption are two. The satisfaction of God's justice by Christ's suffering and death and the gaining of grace for men. Why do we say chief effects? We say chief effects to show that these are the most important, but not only not the only effects of the redemption. For all the benefits of our holy religion and of its influence upon the world are the effects of redemption. Why did God's justice require satisfaction? God's justice required satisfaction because it is infinite and demands reparation for every fault. Man in his state of sin could not make the necessary reparation. So Christ became man and made it for him. All right. So these are the questions that deal with the redemption. So let's uh, stop the questions there and talk about uh, our redemption. What, what would you like to tell us about these answers, Father? Well, I think first uh, something that is important is for us to kind of uh, get a grips on the concept of redemption. Uh, for People in the past ages, that was more of a familiar term. Uh, if you have someone that was a slave, he was someone that, you know, uh, was uh, perhaps caught in a war or bought by someone and he became a slave. And the only way you could make that slave free, you could give him his life back, was by redeeming him, meaning by buying him or paying for him. Uh, the concept of slavery came actually from war. You would have two people fighting each other, and the winner would take the other ones as a slave. That was like basically 
the option was dying. So it was either we kill you or you become our slave. And so you mm-hmm. would become a slave. And so in order for you to be free, you had to pay something. And that's the concept of redemption here. Uh, it's, again, an analogy. Uh, when we, When Adam committed sin, then... Adam, by that fact, he put himself under the and, and all his uh, descend uh, all his descendants under the slavery of the devil, and that was a free act. So, in order to repair that act, was that Christ came to this earth to redeem us. Uh, they say that there is a here in the catechism. They say that there is two chief effects of redemption, and one is the fact of regaining God's uh, grace for us, meaning to bring us back to be children of God before we were slaves of the devil. Thanks to the redemption of Christ, we become again children of God, united to Jesus Christ. And the other effect is the satisfaction of God's justice. And here I would say uh, something important, and is, well, this concept, I think think it will come in other questions in the future. Uh, Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't. So I'll just go into that right now. All right. Uh, More than God's justice, I would say God's glory. Uh, Remember that uh, the most important thing in the universe, the most important thing in the whole universe is God's glory, God's honor, God's name, God's essence. And so it's not so much, and and here is uh, something that, you know, kind of might hurt our pride, is not so much about us. It's actually about God, you know? Mm. And so the the greatest damage from our sin, uh, and I'm putting uh, sin as, as a collective thing here, the greatest damage from our sins and, and from Adam's sin was not our harm. It was the damage done to God's glory, to God's uh, holy name. And so that needed to be repaired. And, you know, so it, what what was that damage? How did sin harm God's glory? Well, there is, remember that God's inner glory, so to speak, the glory that he has in his essence, in his self, that cannot be touched. No matter what we did, even if all men went to hell, God would not suffer from it. There would, there would be no damage done directly to him. Right. But in God's, in God's plan, in God's plan, we were supposed to glorify God for all eternity. And the loss of that was a certain... Uh, was was less external glory given to God. Uh, it would require a lot of explanation to go into the distinction between the external glory that could be given to God and the glory that he has in himself. Mm. But the, the point is that, you know, when we glorify God, when we love God, when we honor God, he receives more external glory from creatures. And so that is the greatest damage, the loss of those things. Uh, it's mostly a damage that is done to us, but it's it, any... Any kind of uh, reducing of God's glory, even if it's ter- external, excuse me, it's a great damage. Uh, so, because it's a loss that is done in something that is the best thing that there could ever be, which is, again, the praise of God, the acknowledgement of God, the glorification of God. So, right, so it's, the, not, it's not God himself that's damaged, but it's this external acknowledgement of him that ought to be there. Yes. So, uh, you know, the center of the universe is not men. The center of the universe or the center of all, all that exists 
the the best thing that there can be and what everything and everything should glorify every everyone should glorify is God. So mm-hmm. anything that can be done to glorify God furthermore should be done and any loss in that is a great loss. Not that God gets damaged, but it's a great loss anyways on to- could you say the universe is damaged? Well, not. I guess one could say that. You know, it's just a great loss. Uh, I was going to say ontologically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But uh, <laughs> well, it's like all of creation suffers because this glory that should be there is not there. Yes. To give an example of the concept, let's say, for example, that Beethoven hadn't written some of his masterworks. Right. Is is that someone's damage? Well. One could hardly say that it's anyone's damage, but it's a great loss. It would be a great loss, right? Because it's something great that there could be. Okay, yeah, that's a good analogy. So it's something like that, you know. It's God doesn't get damaged, of course, but there is a great loss in, in the loss of a God's glory. And the first point of redemption, the first thing that Christ did, his first intention, was to repair for that glory, which is parallel and the same that saying that he satisfied God's justice. It's all linked together. So could you, could you look at it this way, that like all of the good, all of the glory that never came to be due to sin, um, all of the symphonies that were never written is more than made up for by the redemption? Exactly, yes. And that you said it right, more than made up for it. There is a lot more now. Uh, because this is way beyond anything that we could have ever done. You know, if all of mankind had never sinned and we had all became the greatest saints in the universe and we had all glorified God, all of our our acts and all of our prayers and all of our love would have been nothing compared to the acts of our Blessed Mother of the Virgin Mary. And all of that together, even the acts of the Virgin Mary together would be nothing, with all due respect, compared to the slightest act of glory that our Lord gave to the Most Holy Trinity and to His Father when He was here on earth. So it's like God took this evil that happened and He made an imaginable good and glory out of it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's something that, I mean, the devil must be, uh, you know, I don't know how to say it, but, you know... Um, <laughs> Just, uh, how do you say that? Like rolling over in his grave or something like that. This is just, it's just amazing and beautiful how God took something that would have been so evil and he made it into the greatest glory that God could ever receive. So in Christ's redemption, uh, the main purpose, the main object was to restore all those things that were due to God from us. So that the, Mm -hmm. the goal of creation, which was, having humanity, humanity giving that glory to God and, and sharing in that glory, all of the goals that God had, uh, had when he created men, all of those goals were restored and not only restored, uh, improved. So it's, it's, a, it's a very beautiful thing to consider. Yeah, that's... Um, I don't know if I've ever heard it put that way before, but that seems like a pretty good answer, or at least part of the answer to the the question that I had been pondering before, that how could Christ atone for sinful man since he was God, but you know, and not not guilty of any sin himself. But it's it's like 
um, when seen from that perspective, that there was something that man ought to have given to God that Christ can give in his stead, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I think maybe what prompted all these ideas into my head was actually trying to study to answer the question that, mm-hmm. that you had sent me before. Because I, I must say to our audience, we cheat. Uh, brother <laughs> sent me the questions before, and, and, and then I study them. Because otherwise, I saw, even like that, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but, well, that's a yeah, really good that, answer, though. I, 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 I don't think, like I said, I don't think I've heard it put that way before. That that's actually I think that a very important point, and this I owe it probably to my father superior in the Carmelites. You know he would stress that point a lot. You know it's not men, it's it's God. God is the center of it all. Mm-hmm. And you know just to uh, you said the question already, so I'm just going to go a little bit more into that. And is you right? Know, the uh, should should that, I even just read the question that I that I sent you so that you know everybody's on yeah, the same ahead. page? This, this was the question I sent Father in advance. Uh, since Christ is God and sinless, how could he atone for sinful man? How can he atone for sins that he did not commit? Or in other words, how is it just that the sins of mankind should be imputed to him? Mm-hmm. And so uh, in there, there are two other uh, principles, I guess, or notions that would help us understand that. And the first one would be, Redemption. Remember that when you have to redeem someone, let's go back to the example of the slave. Mm-hmm. If I have to redeem a slave, I myself cannot be a slave. It has to be someone from out, from uh, from uh, an outward person that comes and redeems the slave. You know what I mean? Mm. You have to be free to redeem the slave. You can't give freedom unless you already possess it. Yes. So that's why it couldn't be any any other person. It couldn't be any man that could redeem mankind. It had to be someone that was innocent and perfect. It couldn't be Moses. It couldn't be Moses. So that's <laughs> why Christ had to be. And the, the whole concept of redemption is, you know, why did, why did, why did Christ come? And then, uh, well, the other part of the question is, how is that just that uh, man's sins are, impu- are imputed to him? Mm-hmm. And well, part, part of that is answered by that notion. It's not so much justice, but glory that we're talking about to restore God's glory. But also, mm-hmm. this brings us back to the concept that is taught to us in Catholic faith, that there is a unity of, of, uh, in humankind, in mankind. We're a group, we're a family, and we're together. Uh, I hate to say this because it's being used right now. Where are we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. <laughs> but, uh, no, but it's it true, is. though, right? It is true. We're all in this together in the sense that Adam's sin affected us all. And so Christ... Because we're all his children. We're all children of Adam. And we're all part of mankind. When Christ became man, he took that inheritance. He didn't suffer the sin. He he didn't have original sin. But he was already part of mankind. He kind of made himself a member of the family. Even though Mm -hmm. without sharing in our misery in regards to sin... He shared on the other sufferings that we had, but he made himself willingly a member of the family. And so his satisfaction was worth, was worth it because he was a member of the family. He was one of us. And that's why you have the need of Christ being both God and men, which we all heard this before in catechism. Christ mm-hmm. has to be God so that his sufferings, his merits, his actions 
are actually worth infinitely. They have an infinite merit, an infinite value. And so they restore God's glory and God's uh, justice. They pay for God's justice. And he had to be man so that his sufferings were atoning for us. He was a member of our family. He was one of us. And so his sufferings were actually uh, uh, injustice considered as mankind paying back to God. That's mm -hmm. the answer I would have so far, I guess. Yeah, I think that's... um, It's still... Uh, tricky i think like to to understand but it's it's one that needs a lot of uh consideration i guess yes because the, the, here here's the thing is it's not like uh i i think a lot of it goes back to what i was explaining in the past it's not that god said okay all of the sins of mankind here are on you and now you are going to suffer, you're going to suffer the punishment for it uh that's not what it is really we meditate upon that and we say that and that's really good for devotion but it was mostly the, the fact of, of saying I'm restoring God's glory I'm restoring God's uh, plan that was the meaning of it that, that was the real purpose of it mm -hmm. remember that Adam sinned by disobedience and so God's glory is uh, diminished in that fact so Christ came as a new Adam to obey And that's why the passion had to be such a difficult thing to obey in, because that was supposed to be a reparation for what Adam had done. So uh, that's the main center of redemption. It's not so much that, that Christ is paying for our sins as a, some kind of an economical thing. You know, they sinned, so now I have to pay for it, and now we get back to heaven. No, it's more like they destroyed the plan. Here Christ comes, he read restores the plan and he does what they were supposed to do and that way the whole plan is restored and that means uh, justice has been satisfied um, because Christ took that debt upon himself and and that's another another point let me know if I'm totally not making sense or out of the no it does make sense I, I guess the key point to it that where where it gets um requires consideration is is the idea that you mentioned that that Christ became part of the human family part of you know he could truly uh be counted as one of us mm -hmm. and and here's the thing too it's not like it's not like uh god the father put the sins of men on christ is that christ took them upon himself mm -hmm. so that that also changes the concept a little bit it's not like Like, it was a commandment of the Father where he said, okay, I'm putting them on you. It was more Christ himself voluntarily who said, I will take them upon myself. I will take them, and I will, I will suffer the consequences, and I will restore the grace to you. So it was, the whole point is that reparation of the, of, of the plan of God that was done by Christ, Christ's redemption. I think that's, that's what really makes it be better understood. Yeah. That's um, to to me. That's been a very uh, helpful piece of the puzzle. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm here to help you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we could. Well, go did you? Uh, should we go, uh, go on to the next questions, or did you have anything else on this topic? No, that's all. Let's go to the next ones. Okay, the next question here is: What do you mean by grace? By grace, I mean a supernatural gift of God bestowed on us through the merits of Jesus Christ 
for our salvation. What does supernatural mean? Supernatural means above or greater than nature. All gifts, such as health, learning, or the comforts of life, that affect our happiness chiefly in this world, are called natural gifts. And all gifts, such as blessings, that affect our happiness chiefly in the next world, are called supernatural or spiritual gifts. What do you mean by merit? Merit means the quality of the serving well or ill for our actions. In the question above, it means a right to reward for good deeds done. How many kinds of grace are there? There are two kinds of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. What is the difference between sanctifying grace and actual grace? Sanctifying grace remains with us as long as we are not guilty of mortal sin, and hence it is often called habitual grace. But actual grace comes to us only when we need it, when, when we need its help in doing or avoiding an action, and it remains with us only while we are doing or avoiding that action. What is sanctifying grace? Sanctifying grace is that grace which makes the soul holy and pleasing to God. What do you call those graces or gifts of God by which we believe in Him, hope in Him, and love Him? These graces or gifts of God, uh, we call them the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. What do you mean by virtue and vice? When we say virtue and vice, we say uh, the virtue is the habit of doing good, and the vice is the habit of doing evil. An act, good or bad, doesn't form a habit. So a virtue or a vice is the result of repeated acts of the same kind. Does habit excuse us from the sins committed through it? Habit does not excuse us from the sins committed through it, but rather makes us more guilty by showing how often we must have committed the sin to acquire the habit. If, however, we are seriously trying to overcome a bad habit and through forgetfulness yield to the bad habit, that habit may sometimes excuse us from the sin. What is faith? Faith is a divine virtue by which we firmly believe the truths which God has revealed. What is hope? Hope is a divine virtue by which we firmly trust that God will give us eternal life and the means to obtain it. What is charity? Charity is a divine virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. Why are faith, hope, and charity called virtues? They are called virtues because they are not mere acts, but habits by which we always and in all things believe God, hope in Him, and love Him. What kind of virtues are faith, hope, and charity? These are called infused theological virtues to distinguish them from the four moral virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Why do we say the three theological virtues are infused and the four moral virtues acquired? We say the three theological virtues are infused, that is, poured into our souls, because they are strictly gifts of God and they do not depend upon our efforts to obtain them. While the four moral virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, though also gifts of God, may as natural virtues be acquired by our own efforts. Why do we believe God, hope in Him, and love Him? We believe God and hope in Him because He is infinitely true and cannot deceive us. We love Him because He is infinitely good and beautiful and worthy of all love.
What mortal sins are opposed to faith? Atheism, which is a denial of all revealed truths, and heresy, which is a denial of some revealed truths, and superstition, which is a misuse of religion, all of those are opposed to faith. All right. So the first few questions that we, we looked at were, were dealing with the redemption itself, and now these ones are about the effects of the redemption, I guess, the uh, graces and virtues that, that uh, have flowed from it. So uh, what, uh, what, what would you like to comment on, uh, on these questions, Father? Oh, well, the first thing that I would say is, uh, the first one that I think is important to understand is the difference of grace. Uh, the concept of grace might be foreign to some non-Catholic listen, non listeners. Uh, mm -hmm. Catholics, I think, will have some concept of it. Uh, one could give an example of this. Grace is in our souls like electricity would be, for example, for a light bulb or any electric device. It's something you don't see, but it's necessary, absolutely necessary for the thing to run. So our souls, uh, in order to do anything that is worthy of heaven they need to have that electricity, that divine electricity, so to speak, which we would call here grace. And some theologians will, I'm not going to go into detail on what exactly would grace be, but some theologians would explain it as basically a sharing in the life of God, in the life of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like our Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, put an example of this. He says, uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. Just like in a plant, you have the, the plant, and, and, and in the plant you have branches, and those branches, mm -hmm. they all share the same sap. As soon as you cut it, they don't have sap anymore. They can't do anything more. You know, they die, and they're thrown out, and they're burned. Well, that gives us a perfect example of grace. As long as we're united to God through grace, we are receiving that sap that helps us work. And this is work. sanctifying grace you're referring to. I'm talking about sanctifying grace, yes. Uh, and that we're receiving that, and that allows us to, to live. So that would be, thank you for making that point, that would be sanctifying grace. That would be the grace through which we live in the life of God or share in the life of God. Mm -hmm. and, and that is, they say, habitual, because we have it. Just like a plant has habitually sap, or like an electric device that is running will have habitually electricity running through it that allows it to run. Sanctifying grace is something that is in our in our soul, in the manner of a life, something that is always there, you know, trying to, like, giving us that, that vital energy, so to speak. Um, that's habitual grace, sanctifying, sanctifying grace. They speak about other kinds of grace, which they call actual grace. And the name itself says it. That's grace that comes with certain actions or for certain actions. To give an example of this, let's say, for example, that you are married. And you live in the mm -hmm. state of grace, and you have habitually living in the state of grace. But let's say, for example, that at one point you are very strongly tempted. Let's say that you are at the office, and there is a person that unfortunately has no morals and comes and tempts you. Mm -hmm. At that moment, you require a special aid. It's a difficult moment. It's a difficult temptation. And you require special strength to, live, to deal with that. You require special wisdom to answer to that. You require a, a special uh, fortitude to be able to pray at that moment. All those things that come at that moment, you know, like they, they, they are triggered and they come at that moment from God. 
that would be actual grace. And it's given at that moment. Are we those have, graces... Sorry. No, go ahead. Are, are those graces given to everybody? Or are there certain things that we can do to dispose ourselves more to receive those graces? We can always help grace by accepting those dispositions that God sends us. I, I will not say that we can dispose ourselves to receive grace, uh, because even the disposition is a grace. But uh, mm -hmm. we can certainly answer, we can correspond to grace. So when we have, uh, for example, a good impulse to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to say a prayer every morning so that if I'm ever tempted at work, Our Lady will give me strength to not fall. Well, that is... Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That is me corresponding to a grace and inspiration, and that is helping me dispose myself so that when the time comes, I will be prepared. Mm -hmm. And that applies to any other situation on, on, on life. Right. It, there is a, for example, I'm, I'm not a technician or an, well, no, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, you know how there are some machines that are running on electricity and right. they have a, they have a, you, sometimes you have an installation, a power grid that if the machine requires more, it will send more power to that machine. Mm. You know what I mean? So the machine is so. running, and then suddenly, let's say that there is a, a crane or something, and then suddenly it's lifting up weight. So it, it requires more power, and at that moment, the grid responds, and it sends more power that way. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happens with grace. We have sanctifying grace, and then when, the, when our souls require that extra power, then we get that extra uh, push mm, from that. That's a good image. Divine energy, you know that, or divine, I don't want to say divine energy, but the grace of God. Mm -hmm. that helps us work and uh, something else I guess that would be interesting is that certain states in life uh, make us give us the right to have those actual graces mm -hmm. for example you're a religious brother so you have a, a special state in life and that means that you are entitled to receive certain graces that are fitting for your state uh, me for example me and you we're both uh, consecrated to God Mm -hmm. And that means that we have to keep chastity and we have to keep other virtues. And, of course, we might not be perfect, but we are entitled to those graces. So mm -hmm. when, you know, while other person perhaps wouldn't have the, as many graces in certain respects, you and me, because of the state where we live, we have those graces. If we dispose ourselves correctly, we will receive them. The same goes, for example, for a married person. Let's say that you're married. And you have children and you're a parent. Well, then you are entitled to receive those actual graces that relate to the education of your children. When you have to deal with them, when you have to talk to them or, you know, yell at them or whatever, those graces. If you dispose yourself, if you cooperate with grace and, and you dispose yourself, you will receive them and you will be able to, to work properly. If you are undisposed, if you are in the state of sin, if you are not in sanctifying grace, if you are, even if you are not in the state of sin, but if you are, for example, dissipated and listening to bad music and watching movies or whatever that are not quite good, uh, well, you will put a hindrance. You are not responding to grace as you should. And so it's kind mm -hmm. of like, yes, the machine is getting the power. It, it's even getting some extra power. But you're lacking oil here and there, and, you know, some parts are broken, and so it's not working quite as it should. So I think that's, that's an important point to understand. 
Right. No. Um, I, I, I like that image. So then is um, actual grace like essentially the same sort of thing as habitual grace? It's the divine life in our souls, just more of it being poured in at that moment as it's needed? That's a good question, actually. And, and I think there is a different explanations from theologians. It, it could be said that it's uh, essentially the same, but actual graces are very different according to the different stages in life and the different situations that there are. But it, it's basically the same. It's the same strength of, our, of, of God working through us. But grace is actually one of those things that we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. We don't fully understand what it is or how it works. And I'm not saying that we're ignorant about it, what I'm saying is that it's not something that pertains to our stage in life right now to really fully see what it is. Uh, so theologians have different explanations of how to understand grace. Uh, the one that I prefer, uh, that to me seems more fitting, is to understand it as a sharing in the life of Christ. And that, that is actually grace becomes kind of like Christ working through us and giving us his power, his strength, his virtues to work in life. We will take a short break and we'll be back for more. You're listening to The Catholic Wire. In The Catholic Wire, we have pledged to provide our online content free of charge in order to benefit as many souls as possible. If you wish to contribute to the support of our network, please go to our website to provide a donation. All your contributions will be used exclusively for the propagation of the Catholic faith. In the Catholic Wire, we greatly appreciate your questions and stories, and we would like to feature them on the air. If you have anything you would like to share, please send it as a voice message, and we may select it to appear in our podcast. We could go... Grace is a very, very deep topic, but before we... uh, we move too far. I do want to talk about the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, if you don't mind. Okay. No, please uh, do. No, before that, we have to talk about virtue and vice, actually. Okay. I'm, think, I'm thinking a lot of people won't know uh, what, what exactly that is. I know somebody who's, who's very big about that, that uh, people don't know what virtue is anymore. No. <laughs> Uh, well, like uh, to me, it was a blurry topic until I went to the monastery or the seminary. Um, when you make an act, let's say, for example, that I do a good act. Let's say that I uh, give alms to someone. Mm-hmm. Or, or let's say that I'm a child and, and I decide to obey my parents today. Well, that was a good act, right? right? But that is not a habit. It's not something that I do habitually. If I do it habitually, then that becomes something part of my nature. It becomes a part of my nature. If every time that my parents tell me something, I go and obey them, it becomes a habit. And, and the nice thing about that is that the more it's a habit, the easier it is. Habits can be good or bad. I can be, have a habit of obeying my parents or I can ha- have a habit of having selective hearing. And every time that they tell me something, I'll just listen to the part that is good for me. Mm-hmm. And if I repeat those acts, it becomes a bad habit. So the good habits are called virtues. The bad habits are called vices. That's just a quick uh, intro to that. Now, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity 
are special virtues. We, there, there can be two kinds of virtues. The virtues that we can acquire naturally by our efforts, those virtues are common to pagans, to everybody. You know, uh, stars in Hollywood have some virtues. Uh, <laughs> politicians have some virtues, maybe. Uh, <laughs> oops, sorry. Uh, I know I'm sure many of them do. Um, and and uh, when we're talking about natural virtues, people that everyone can acquire, the Romans, for example, in the pagan times, the Romans had many virtues that, that were quite remarkable. But they are natural virtues. These are things that if you try it, you make an effort and you get it. I'll give you an example of this, justice, natural justice. Okay, uh, You have a people, for example, the Romans were, were known uh, for their system of justice. And actually our common uh, codes of law, all of them trace back in many things to the Roman code of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a virtue, for example, of being kind to people or of being not charitable, but uh, philanthropy, meaning to, to do good to men. Uh, and there's a distinction there. You see, for example, a lot of artists, a lot of famous people that donate millions of dollars to this cause or that cause, and they show it on TV and whatever. That's not charity. That That's called philanthropy. So, well, at least if they are not in the grace of God, that would be philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Meaning they're doing something for the love of men. They're trying to help their fellow men. That's a natural virtue. But beyond the natural virtues, there are what we call theological virtues. And they are called theological virtues because they are given by God. Nothing that we do can earn for us those virtues. They're beyond our reach. It has to be given to us by God. And that, those virtues are very special. Those are faith, hope, and charity. I want to mention here something that the Father Superior in the Carmelites said, and it really it really stick to me because it's quite remarkable, it's true. In all the other virtues, you can have excess, right? Let's mm-hmm. say, for example, that I uh, the virtue of philanthropy, of giving to men, I can practice that to an excess where I give too much of it and I, I get left without anything for myself. And that would be an excess. Right? It would be a vice. It would become something evil. Let's say, for example... Excess of justice would be unmerciful. Mm-hmm. Being unmerciful and, and, and practicing justice without paying attention to the particular case of each person. You know, I could say, for example, a mother's told, and she's a single mother, and there is a child that is three years old, and he's going to be left alone if she goes to jail... And I say, it doesn't matter. She goes to jail 20 years and the child goes without a mother because she's told 200 bucks from her mm-hmm. job. Uh, I'm sure that would not be the case, but I'm just putting an example. Right. That would be an excess of justice. Any other natural virtue can have an excess. Theological virtues, there is no excess. You can grow in these virtues as much as you want. You will never reach a point where it's excessive. Uh, there are deviations from it, of course. You can deviate from right. it. But if you practice faith to the extreme, you will never reach a point where you can say, I have too much faith. If you practice hope to an extreme, I'm talking about, again, divine hope, you will never reach a point where you say, I have too much hope in God. Right, that wouldn't be presumption. No, no, I mean, presumption would be a deviation from it because right. it would be based on a lie. But if you're practicing hope to the extreme, it would never be an extreme. And the same goes for charity, for love. There will never be a point where you can say, I love God too much. 
Or I, the I, I measure reached. of our love for God is to love him without measure. Yes, exactly. That's who's that? Saint Bernard. I think it's Saint Can Bernard. I, yeah. Yes. Today is the day, the day of Saint Bernard. By the way, that's really cool. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Saint not Bernard, planned. pray for us. Yes, pray for us. Not planned at all. That was just brother. <laughs> that was the Holy Ghost right there. That's right. Yeah, actual grace. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Uh, charity is something that you can grow in, and and you will never reach a limit. And so that's a beautiful thing to consider, that these virtues are something where we can always grow in. Mm-hmm. That's why the apostles believed in our Lord, and they, yet our Lord said to them, and, and you know, they, say to, uh, they said to our Lord, give us faith, you know, make us grow in faith. Uh, and our Lord said, you know, if your faith was as big as this grain of mustard, uh, they have faith, but it could grow much, much more. Mm-hmm. So... These virtues, we can always grow in them, and they are often quite misunderstood, I would say that, uh, just to make a brief comment there to maybe treat later, I'm not sure. Okay, maybe we'll come back to that then. Well, yeah, I think we will have episodes on that too, maybe at one point. Especially right. in the shows of the young woman and the young men, we will definitely have episodes on faith, hope, and charity. Okay. Well, should I continue with the questions then? Sure. All right. Um, The next question is, who is our neighbor? Every human being capable of salvation of every age, country, race, or condition, especially if he needs our help, is our neighbor in the sense of the catechism. Why should we love our neighbor? We should love our neighbor because he is a child of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and because he is our brother created to dwell in heaven with us. What is actual grace? Actual grace is that help of God which enlightens our mind and moves our will to shun evil and do good. Is grace necessary to salvation? Yes, grace is necessary to salvation, because without grace we can do nothing to merit heaven. Can we resist the grace of God? We can, and unfortunately, often do. We do resist the grace of God. Is it a sin knowingly to resist the grace of God? It is a sin because we thereby insult him and reject his gifts, without which we cannot be saved. Does God give his grace to everyone? God gives to everyone he creates sufficient grace to save his soul. And if persons do not save their souls, it is because they have not used the grace given. What is the grace of perseverance? That is a grace that grace is a particular gift of God which enables us to continue in the state of grace till death. Can we merit the grace of final perseverance or know when we possess it? We cannot merit the grace of final perseverance or know when we possess it because it depends entirely upon God's mercy and not upon our actions. To imagine we possess it would lead us into the sin of presumption. Can a person merit any supernatural reward for good deeds performed while he is in mortal sin? A person cannot merit any supernatural reward for good deeds performed while he is in a mortal sin. Nevertheless, God rewards such good deeds by giving the grace of repentance, and therefore all persons, even those in mortal sin, should ever strive to do good. Does God reward anything but our good works? God rewards our good intention and desire to serve Him, even when our works are not successful. We should make this good intention often during the day, and especially in the morning. All right, Father, 
So any comments you'd like to add to these? I think maybe a good thing to do would be to begin by uh, one of your questions that you had. I think that would give us a, a cue to begin discussing it. Okay, well, should I just read that question then? Yeah, I just uh, should. Okay, here goes. Uh, and I, I hope this is the question you were referring to. It's the one I had marked for this section. Should we treat all people equally? Is it illegitimate to love some more than others? That was not the question I was thinking of, but let's go for that one. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, we definitely need I'll ask to be, the other one uh, next then. Uh, if we have video, I could be like waving signs at you so that, you know. <laughs> no, just kidding. I thought it might be that other one, yeah. It's good, it's good. We can go for that one. Actually, that's a very interesting question. There is a saying in Spanish, I'm not sure if it's in English, it says, uh, and do good and don't look to whom. Hmm. And a lot of people think that's in the Bible. And actually, it's quite opposite. The Bible actually says, don't do good to everyone. Don't do good to evil. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. Mm. That needs to be understood properly. Should we love everyone the same? Actually, that's we just covered that question in one of the episodes of The Consecrated Life, which is not maybe to everyone for everyone to listen to, but um, we should show our love to everyone in the same way. Mm. How, how should love be? Uh, the truth is we should love more those who are closer to God. Mm. So, for example, we know our Blessed Mother is the person that is closest to God. So we should love her more than anyone else. Obviously, I'm, I'm excluding uh, Christ, obviously, should be our first object of love. Right, and, and God Mother. too, of course. Yeah, I mean, the Holy Trinity and Christ, then our Blessed Mother, because we know for sure that she's closer to God, and then the saints, because we also know that the saints are closer to God. But the problem is, you know, if we could see which people are closer to God here on earth, they are more worthy of our love, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are more perfect, and we should love more what is more perfect. The problem is we cannot see that here on this earth. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Some people tend to make judgments on that regard, and they say, well, so-and-so is holier than so-and-so, you know. Father so-and-so is holier because he says the Mass is lower. Or Father so-and-so <laughs> is, you know, holier because he is such a kind person to me, and the other father is very blunt when he talks to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my fist, by the way, hitting my arm, my, my, my hand. And we, ca we cannot say that. We cannot say that. A lot of times, people that seem very holy... Uh, there's another reason for that, perhaps, and, and people that don't seem too holy might be holier. We don't know. We cannot tell. Mm -hmm. uh, the way we should consider everyone is as holier than us, than myself, and so I should love everyone and show everyone the same love. And you should there love is, them more than yourself. You, you should love them as much as yourself, at least. Mm. But you should always consider the, them humbly as holier and better than you. Now, Here's an important note to make to that, a side note. Does that mean that I should go and love someone that is, for example, pursuing the damnation of my soul? Give an example. Uh, well, we're supposed to be kind to everyone, right? And if someone, you know, uh, asks me to go out and have dinner with them, well, I'll go and have dinner with them if there is no problem there. But what if there is someone that is leading me to sin? What if there is someone that is being a bad example to me? What if there is someone that is trying to bring me down, to bring me to commit sin? Well, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to love them in charity. 
but I'm certainly going to step away from them. And that might actually be a way of, of showing love for them more because if, if you're, you know, if they're sinning or they're leading you to sin, then you're actually kind of an occasion for, of sin for them too, right? Exactly. So it's that's, better for both of you to give them a wide berth. Yes, that's a very good uh, remark. Uh, you show them more love like that. So the love is interior. It's in your intention, in your will. And the love that you show your neighbor is, that's a very good remark. You know, it's true. The love that you show our neighbor is first in pursuing the salvation of their soul. Mm-hmm. And secondly, in exterior acts. Let's say, for example, that I know a person that is in error, a person that, for example, right now, it might be considering uh, the, uh, you know, gender, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, and, and uh, well, uh, I'm going to show love to that person. I'm going to be kind to them. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to tell them anything. I'm going to keep helping them out and, you know, paying for their rent and whatever. Mm-hmm. No, no, because then what you're doing there is not loving them. You're actually harming them. So the first way in which you show love to a person is by pursuing their salvation. To put an example, a graphic example of this that I use very often. Let's say that my son, or let's say that a friend of mine, it's in the street. And he's like, oh, look at that. This is such a cool place. I received the sun here, and it's so nice and warm in here. And, and I love this spot over here. And then there's a bus coming towards him full speed, about to ram him. Mm-hmm. And I say to him, oh, well, if you like it, that's good for you. I mean, yeah, stay there. I mean, I'm not going to bother you. You know, I'm not going to mess with your life. You're free to do whatever you want. Right. Bam! Buzz runs over him and he dies all over the place. <laughs> yes, very graphic. Yeah, very sorry. sad There's, story. Well, it's it's my it's the language barrier. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't love. What's the proper way to right. love that person? Is get over here right now. No, I'm not going to get over here. You get over here right now. No, I mean, I'm, I like it in here. You grab him and you pull him and you bring him over because you're saving their life. Obviously, you cannot do that in every situation in life. But even if you upset him, that would be the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. that is in a material aspect. In the spiritual aspect, the same thing applies. If you see a person that is going towards damnation, the proper way to show them love is to save their souls. And that kind of puts a, a whole kibosh on the concept right now that they have of free love. You know, like, oh, you know, they love each other, so we should allow them to love each other. You know, love should be free. Be free to love anyone you want. That's not love. They are talking about something very different, which I will not address here. But that's mm-hmm. not love. True love means it's love it's integral love. It pursues the good of the person in every single way, especially, firstly, in the spiritual side of it. So then would it also not be love, like, between two divorced and remarried people? No, it's, it's kind of the exact same thing. Right. It's a selfish love, because really you're loving yourself. You know, you're trying to please yourself. You want to have that for yourself. If you truly love that person you would be willing to sacrifice yourself to be alone for their salvation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, oh, and right, I can, yes. I you understand. Would willing, you would be willing to say, you know what? I'm willing to be alone. I'm willing to suffer the lack of you. Uh, you know, and, and I would say it like this. Yes, I love you. I want to be with you. I have a really good time with you, and, and I, I would love to spend my life with you, but I can't. I can't because I'm married. 
And precisely because I love you, I have to make the sacrifice of you. Precisely right. because I love you, I have to let you go. And and I, I, I want to see you first in heaven. Exactly. You know? I'll be sending I, you to hell if I stay here, which wouldn't be love. Yeah. And the opposite situation is saying, I'm willing to send you to hell to spend some good time here of, for a couple of years. That's quite a statement to make. And and I would like, you know, uh, okay, I, I, I tend to take things too far sometimes. But let's say that a person is divorced or living together without being married or something. Get together to that with that person. Hold their hands and tell them, where do you believe they're going to go after they die? Mm -hmm. Just state it. After we die, where are we going, both you and me? And, and okay, wow, this just went way, way, way out there. But uh, that's that's kind of the case. It's like, if you really love someone, uh, let's not go into that right now, but if you really love someone, you pursue first their salvation. Right. So that that was one question, brother. Uh, there was another question. Okay, I'll, I'll ask my other question here. And we kind of talked about this um, in the last section, I think. But here's the, the question, because we, we didn't necessarily cover it fully. Is grace given to all men in the same degree? If not, why not? And is that just? The uh, grace, uh, as I was saying, is a, is a very complicated topic because there is a lot of, of things to consider. There are so many different circumstances. Uh, the answer to that would be no. Grace is not given to everyone in the same degree. Mm. Um, some people receive more than others. And, and that is just. And here is something really cool. Remember, the beginning of the show, we were saying, man is not the center. God is the center. Right. Right? Uh, when I read the, the answer of St. Thomas to this question, or to a question that is about the same point, the way he says it is this. The relationship between man and God is the relationship of a clay, a bass of clay, to its maker. So... Uh, God has the right to do whatever he wants with us. So if God wants to give more grace to Brother Alexios than to Father Cepeda, he's welcome to do so, and he's, we're both his creatures, and he can. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in heaven, and I'll be looking at Brother Alexios way up there, and I'll be like down here, and that's, that's God's will. Um, that's right. It, that's God's will. It's like uh, that's, uh, he is our maker, so he can do whatever he wants with us. And that's why he gives... So does he actually, like, will that actively, that some people should become holier than others? Yes, because every, every, every grace that we receive is in the will of God. So he actually does have a, a plan for everyone, and in that plan, some people are holier than others. Um, there are many things to consider about that. It's really interesting. The first mm -hmm. thing is, well, what, what we were saying, you know, that's, it's in God's freedom to do that. The, the second thing is this, uh, that gives beauty to creation. The whole concept of the equality, diversity. yes, the whole concept of equality is, is a concept that is foreign to truth. Uh, we're not all equal. We cannot be all equal. As much as you try, we can't. You know, uh, Brother Alexios can run. Uh, remember when we were doing the marathons, brother, here in Omaha? I do remember that. Did you run the whole thing? Uh, I, I managed to do it one time. 
I think you were like third place or something like that, weren't no, you? No, nothing like that. Well, I was like the... last place among all of the seminarians. Okay, that's no, that, I must not have run that. You do run the whole trip. I, I did run I the whole thing. I can't. I, I'll run half of it and then I'm I'm gone. Like all the air is out of my lungs. I'm just tripping out of there. I'm like Wiley Coyote after running after the road runner. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no matter how much I try to equal brother in his running abilities, I will never get that. <laughs> no, matter, no matter how much I try to get rid of my uh, Spanish accent, I cannot do it. It's it's as much as I try is there, you know. As much as some people try to be beautiful, they might improve their looks. It will never be as beautiful as the most beautiful woman or guy on on earth. As much mm-hmm. as you try to be tall, you will never be tall if you were born short. You might do some surgery on you, you know, but that doesn't make you any taller than the tallest guy. Just putting examples out there, but the the point is, the truth shows us. Life every day show us. Shows us that we cannot be equal, and God made things all, like that. That's all on a natural plane, though, right? Mm-hmm. On the supernatural plane is the same. Uh, God also didn't make things equal. Some people have more grace than others. But right now, I can hear our rebellious nature going. What you know? I have right to as much grace as our blessed mother did. <laughs> and here's the thing. Uh, remember this. In heaven, we all share of one's another goods. Mm-hmm. So in heaven, it's not like... When you think, for example, of all the graces that the Virgin Mary received, which exceeds everyone else's grace put together, mm-hmm. it's not like it's her own alone and she doesn't share it with anyone. If she has it, it's for us as well. So it's kind of like this. I like to put this example. Imagine that your mom won the lottery. You wouldn't be saying, oh, man, why did my mom want the lottery? If, if you know that if your mom won the lottery, that's also for you. It's, it's going to come for you. You know, you're going to get in that share. It comes first to her, then she gives it to you. In heaven, we're all going to share in one's graces. And when we are in the lowest place in heaven, let's say that, you know, hopefully we make it to heaven. And let's say that I'm in the lowest place in heaven. And when I'll be looking up there and looking at all those beautiful people with a lot more grace, I'm going to be enjoying all of them. Right, I'm gonna be enjoying all of them. It's gonna be like a star in the universe, looking at the other stars and like, oh, how bright this one is, and how bright that one is, and look at that one, that's even brighter. You won't care if you're less bright than them. You'll you'll be enjoying all of them at the same time and sharing in all of them. So that diversity is not something that is evil for you. That's you're gonna get as much grace as you're able to receive. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. And so so like. Each of our natures has a certain limited capacity to receive grace. Yes. It's, it's, like, it's like we're all glasses of different measures, and God is willing to fill that measure. It's up to us if we want to fill it. And if we wanted more, we would not be able to receive it. Mm-hmm. Now, if someone here is still rebellious, I will have them consider this. If you want more grace, you have to suffer a lot, a lot, a lot more. Because basically, in order to, to gain grace, you have to be willing to suffer as well. So, I'm good. <laughs> I'm is good there ever a time in this me. life when we can say my glass is full? I, I don't have to, I don't need any more grace? I'm ready? Mm, whew, that would be a good question. I don't think uh, one could answer that certain, with certainty. Uh, 
I would say that as as much as far as we're in this life, we can always grow more in grace. Mm-hmm. But I do know, I've read that Saint Luis Gonzaga, Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, he actually said that at one point. Okay. He was said, that uh, like shortly before he died? Yeah, he said like I've reached the point where you know this is where I'm getting at. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't remember his exact wording, but he said that. He said I'm not going to grow more in grace, or or mm-hmm. something like that, and that's what he meant. So it's quite possible that that you can reach a point where you are set, and that's probably when you die. You know, I, I think that's probably when when God comes from your soul. That would seem to make sense. Yeah. There was another thing that I wanted to touch upon, and and is the fact that what I was saying about St. Thomas, you know, that our relationship to God is that of a clay, a vase of clay with God, with his maker. Mm-hmm. We tend to think of God as a governor, and we as the governed. You know, when you have a governor and you're governed, the governor is more of your servant. He's a public servant. He's supposed to provide for you. And he's to, supposed to provide for everyone equally. And mm-hmm. we tend to relate that to God because he has providence and he does rule over us. But it's not the same not the same at all. God is not serving us. He doesn't have any... We don't have any rights. We have rights in as much as uh, God has given us rights. Mm-hmm. But we have them because God gave us those rights. We don't have any rights that he didn't give us. Yeah, it's not, it's not like we have them on our own. It's not like we can go to God. And I had this discussion, actually, with a young teenager. We were talking about that. And, and it, it's something that had never clicked in his brain. You know, he was like, we have rights. And we're like, no, <laughs> no, we don't. We were made. No, that's, and there's a psalm that in the Bible that says, we were made. We, were, we did not make ourselves. Right. If you made yourself, yeah, you have rights. You didn't make yourself. Someone made you, so the person that made you has full rights over you. They can say what you have and what you don't have. And that's the case with us and God. We don't have rights of our own. We have rights that God gave us. And, and that, those are the rights that we claim here on earth. And even that is kind of like eh, itchy. But, um, but we, we don't have rights other than what God has given us and what God wants to provide for us as injustice to have us rights. Mm-hmm. And I guess those would be all my comments, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that's a good answer. Um, so I, I don't think I have uh, anything else to ask you about that. So I guess uh, we can we can wrap Ooh. this episode up for today then. <laughs> yes, that'd be good. I think it's a, it's a good time. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode, Father, of uh, What Every Catholic Should Know. For the greater glory of God, I'm Brother Alexius, and you're listening to The Catholic Wire. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Wire. If you have found this show helpful, please say a prayer for all our collaborators. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels and share with your friends. For questions and comments, you may contact us at thecatholicwire.org.